We're going to uh, start uh, a new series this morning for about four weeks uh, called uh, uh, Savior, Lord, and Treasure. And its focus is entirely upon Jesus, who is our Savior, our Lord, and our Treasure. We finished up the Jacob series last week, uh, and, uh, and that was good to go through it, but now we're going to shift back just looking purely and and uh, at, in a more concentrated, uh, extended way at Jesus and who he is and what he's done with the hopes and the prayer that that will stir our hearts to follow him more, more resolutely and joyfully. Um, <clears throat> before I start, I just wanted to uh, say something about last week's message and add a little uh, addendum to it, if I could. Uh, last week's message was about reconciliation. Uh, the reconciliation between Jacob and his brother Esau. Remember, Esau wanted to kill Jacob, and Jacob had wronged him terribly, etc. And they reconciled uh, and hugged, kissed, and wept. Wonderful, very wonderful. And I said uh, that God values reconciliation, and he wants that between all of his people. Very true. Someone spoke to me afterwards, just with a question and a comment, which was very good. I appreciated it. And they said, what about situations where, uh, ever so sadly... Uh, someone has been abusing someone else. It can happen in church. It does happen, sadly, in some churches. And uh, someone has been abusive, and, uh, and then they maybe use or manipulate a verse of Scripture to demand that you reconcile with me, and almost demanding you to come back into a, a situation or a relationship that is simply not safe. We're not called to reconciliation there. God wants us to be safe and provide a safe place for us. Uh, forgiveness, he calls from our heart, but not necessarily in some tragic cases back into a relationship uh, where, where a vulnerable person is at risk. So just, just wanted to point that out and say that to be clear uh, in this world in which we live. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing, and we pray that your spirit would help us to see clearly and even more clearly this morning you as our Savior. Thank you for your word which describes to us all the things you have done and all the things that you are. Just give us grace, give us help to take it in and see it more clearly perhaps than ever before or maybe see it for the very first time or maybe just remember something we've forgotten. So we give you this time and ask that you would speak to us, praying in Jesus' worthy and wonderful name. Amen. I'm going to read a passage from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and uh, Paul wrote the letter of 1 Timothy. <clears throat> and uh, in this chapter, he, uh, he uh, spends a few lines talking about his past and how terrible it was and what a, what a, 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 a nasty fellow he was, persecuting and abusing Christians, and then how God in his mercy saved him and then put him into ministry. So I'll just read that uh, as we uh, focus this morning on uh, Jesus our Savior. Uh, I'm going to look at Jesus our Savior today uh, and next week, and then the week after that, Jesus as Lord, and the week after that, Jesus as our treasure. Often as Christians, we, we, uh, we say, Jesus, who's Jesus? He's my Savior and my Lord. That's where we stop, right? And, and Savior and Lord is, is wonderful, totally true. 
And I want us to uh, plumb the depths of that a little bit more. But sometimes we don't mention something that I think is really true and at the heartbeat of the, of the gospel and of the New Testament, and that is that Jesus becomes ever increasingly so. We're on a journey, but he's becoming the person and the thing of greatest worth in our life, our treasure, and that we'd be able to say that honestly. Based upon his saving work and his lordship, he becomes our treasure and the one that we love above all other things and all other people. So we'll, we'll get there, Lord willing. This morning, Jesus the Savior. Paul writes, I thank, in verse 12, 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. <clears throat> Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Just stop for a minute. Every once in a while, Paul says that. Here is a trustworthy saving, saying that deserves full acceptance. When he says that, he's about to say something hugely important. Everything's important, but this is like all the more so. So what's he going to say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It doesn't say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am one. More than that, of whom I am the worst, Paul says, as he reviews his past life and the despicable things that he had done to Christians at a certain point in his life. But I just wanted us to notice there, why did Christ come into the world? A lot of people have a lot of different answers for that question, but here's the biblical answer. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are all a member of that category. Going on a little further, verse 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Have you ever met, have you ever met someone who sort of thinks, uh, I'm too bad for God to save, like, uh, I've done so much, like, I'm just not worthy? And Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners, basically saying here, if God could save me, he can save anybody. And uh, because of that, of that uh, status that he, that he felt he deserved. Verse 17, a, a praise sentence. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's such a familiar word, Savior, especially to us Christians. What is Jesus to you? He's my Savior, we would say, and rightly so. It's just so easy, though, to sometimes let those words tumble out of our, out of our lips and to forget what they mean or to sort of have, have the, the, the brilliance and the, and the beauty of what they mean fade like a, like a fading sunset at the end of the day or something like that. <clears throat> Jesus is my Savior. Oh, really? So he's saved you from something. Yes. What has he saved you from? From, we think, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, from my sins. So he saved me. So he saved you from your sins. Yeah. And what's the big deal about that? Well, 
Let's not forget our sins are, are a rupture between us and God. They have broken our relationship with God. They've placed us in a place where we're worthy of, of judgment as we are accountable for our sins. Our sins basically will condemn us to hell and prevent us from going to heaven. But our Savior saves us from that scenario if we will come to Him. We'll explore this more. You know, we can be saved in, in many ways in life. You can experience a Savior or a saving moment in your life in various ways. It's not just a Bible term. Uh, I'll give you three examples, a small example, bigger and a little bigger. Um, the first one could be, suppose you, uh, you had a job interview. This was the dream job that you wanted. You've driven to the, 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 the building where the business is. You've parked your car in the parking lot. There's a 100-meter walk to the front door, and you're just about to get out of the car. You've got on your best clothes. You've done your hair. I mean, everything's ready to make your best impression, and a huge thunderstorm breaks out just before you get out of your car, and the rain is teeming down, like just, oh, it's, and you're thinking, oh no, oh no, I've got to get in there, I've got like two minutes to get in there, and I'm going to look like a drowned rat, I'm going to make a terrible impression, I'm doomed, and then there's a knock at your window, and there's a guy standing out there with an umbrella, and another umbrella in his hand, and he says, would you like an umbrella to get into the building? And, and you say with much gratefulness, thank you. You put it up, you run into the building, you, <clears throat> you get in and, and, and everything's okay. You tell the story later at supper that evening to your family, you get the job. And, and you say, he was my savior. He saved me. Like I, I would never have gotten that job. So there's, there's a savior in a small way in our life. And how often would you tell that story couple times, maybe. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. But you would probably tell someone. Okay, second scenario. Um, you're in financial trouble. Uh, big time. You've been out of work for a long time. You've been looking and looking and looking and looking. The economy is terrible. You're, you, you, you're not able to make your mortgage payments. But uh, there's, a, there's a, a friend you have. And uh, she tells you about a hot job lead. Like, this is a great job. You look it up, you, you do a little research on the company, et cetera, you think, I would love that job. It would meet all my needs. It would be a career for me. If only I could get that job. <clears throat> and, you, uh, and so you, you take the recommendation from your friend, and you go in the interview, and you get the job, and, uh, and you, you tell people, 25 years later, after you've been working at this job and it's been a wonderful career for you and been a huge blessing in your life, you're still telling the story about your friend who thought of you and gave you that lead for that job. He or she was my savior, you say. And, uh, and so they were. Third, third scenario, you're in mortal danger. <clears throat> You live in a cabin on the side of the mountain and uh, one of those wildfires is heading your way. It's been hot and dry for a month. The tinder is burning up like crazy. The wind is blowing exactly the wrong way. You're in your cabin and, uh, <coughs> and, and you, you think of escaping and you look at the only road away from your cabin and there are fallen burning trees all across the, all across the road and your, your life, you're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your cabin, but your life as well. The, the flames are that terrible. 
And then you hear the familiar chop, 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 and you, you go out and you look up and there's a, a helicopter coming in and lowering down and a, and a rope and a harness is coming down to you and you grab it and you hang on to it and they lift you out of danger and your life is saved. You'll tell that story for the rest of your life about the day that you nearly lost it in the wildfire and the helicopter came, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so um, I tell those three stories to give you my basic premise this morning. As we talk about Jesus our Savior or anybody else our Savior, what we make of our Savior is directly contingent on what we've been saved from. You've been saved from a soaking? Oh, you might tell the story once or twice. You've been saved from, uh, <coughs> from uh, losing your home and, and the ability to pay your mortgage? Uh, you might tell that story for a few months. Was your life saved on the side of the mountain in the wildfire? You'll tell that story the rest of your life. What story do we tell about Jesus? What has he saved us from? The value we assign, I'm saying it again here, the value we assign to a Savior <clears throat> depends upon our understanding of what the Savior has rescued us from. There was once a woman described to us in Luke chapter 7. Jesus was visiting <clears throat> a home, a Pharisee's house, not a bad guy, and uh, it was kind of a social function. There were a number of people present, doesn't say, 10, 12, 20, maybe, uh, and uh, there's, uh, there, there, people are mixing and mingling and uh, Probably there are a few treats being served and people are interacting with Jesus, checking him out. The new teacher heard some things about him. A lot of small talk going on between them and, and, the, and Jesus. Maybe they're a little wary about some things they've heard. And, uh, and all of a sudden there's a bit of a, commo a, a commotion and uh, people begin looking and nudging one another and pointing and there's a woman kneeling at Jesus' feet, weeping and weeping and weeping, wetting his feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair, kind of in an embarrassed kind of way, and anointing his feet with perfume as an act of great homage. Jesus is asked, she's acting very differently than everybody else in the room. Jesus is asked about this. Don't you know what kind of woman that is? And his answer is very interesting, and it's pertinent to what we're talking about here today. He says this in slide two. Jesus replied, therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. If I could rephrase it, she's been forgiven much. She's loving me much and displaying it effusively, but the person who's been forgiven little loves little. Eh, not a big deal. From what we understand and what tradition would say, this woman quite possibly was a prostitute in her society, but she had encountered the saving grace of Jesus somewhere, somehow, and she was pouring out her love to her Savior, and nothing was held back. <coughs> What we make out of our Savior is directly dependent upon what he has saved us from. Let's continue. 
I'm talking about Jesus the Savior today, but I'm actually going to talk quite a bit about sin, because I think we need to. The Christian faith asserts that Jesus has saved us from our sins and their consequences. Sin has a devastating and destructive and soul-twisting effect upon every human person's life. Sin is much more serious, much more dangerous, much more catastrophic spiritually in time and in eternity than sometimes we think. Here's a question. <clears throat> Why is sin such an eye-rolling topic in our world today? Yeah, you talk to somebody at work or you talk to your neighbor on the, on the front sidewalk and somehow you, you, you say something about sin or its presence in the world or, uh, you know, and, and your neighbor literally rolls their eye and changes the subject. Like, just don't want to talk about this. This is ridiculous. Let's move on, you know. And uh, uh, another question, why is sin sometimes such an eye-rolling topic in the church? Sometimes we don't want to talk about it in church. We think it's too negative. We think, gosh, if we talk about sin, people are going to run for the back door. I'm not so sure about that at all. Our mandate is to tell the truth, not to please people. And, uh, and so we talk about sin this morning because the Savior has saved us from our sin. There are three reasons why people roll their eyes or don't take sin very seriously. Four, actually. I'll get to the fourth one next week. The first one is this. We're accustomed to constantly living in it. We live in a sinful culture, in a sinful world that's saturated with sin. We live in one of the best countries of the world, and we live in one of the best cities in that country, in the world, and maybe you are lucky enough to live on one of the best streets in one of the best cities in one of the best countries in the world, and your street is full of sin. Take a look around. People aren't getting along. People are doing things. People are thinking things, saying things, saying words. There are marriages breaking down on your street. There are children estranged from their parents on your street in the best city, in the best country in the world. Sin is everywhere. We're up to our eyeballs in it, and we're so accustomed to it and acclimatized to it that we don't notice it, or nor do we think it's real. What a shock it must have been for Jesus to leave heaven absolutely holy and clean where there is no sin and come into this world where we're full of it. But we become used to it. And we hardly give it the time of day. We're like fish swimming in water. And you ask a fish, what is water? And they say, what is water? Like, it, they're, they're so, it's, it's so normal to them. They don't know there's anything else. There is something else other than our sinful world. Christ died so that we could go there. Number two, why don't we take sin more seriously in this culture or even in the church? We are always favorably comparing ourselves to people who are worse than we are. We, we do this unconsciously, yet deliberately, because we come out looking better. There was the example of the Pharisee who, uh, Jesus told this story actually, in Luke chapter 18. He says, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and tax collectors in their culture was a despicable person. They were, they were collaborating with the Romans 
collecting taxes from the Jewish people, more taxes than they should collect, and cheating people, etc., etc. So, a bad person. So, Jesus said, a Pharisee, a good person, religious person, very disciplined, very devoted, law-keeping person, and a tax collector went to the temple to pray, and then he tells a strange story, puts a strange twist on it. He says, the uh, Pharisee began his prayer, and he said, oh God, and he recited some of the good things that he does, I tithe, I fast twice a week, I, I do these things, and he, said, he actually said in Jesus' story, I thank you, God, I'm not like that tax collector over there, comparing himself to a worse person so that he could come out looking and smelling like roses. But the tax collector, Jesus tells us what he prayed. He simply was broken about his sins. He knew his sins, and he said, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus saw the whole situation better than we do culturally. He looked at that situation, and here's his verdict. He said the tax collector went home justified instead of the Pharisee, the religious man. So we have all of our categories about who's the worst sinner. We sort of place ourselves conveniently in a good category, and, and sin, uh, our sin, our sin, theirs is pretty bad, but our sin is like we make a few mistakes and that's about it. And uh, so again, we roll our eyes, we don't take sin seriously, and where we have not much sin, we don't need much of a Savior. But the Bible says we have a great Savior and a great salvation because He saved us from a great problem. <clears throat> and we need to investigate that more in our lives. The third reason why we don't take sin very seriously <clears throat> is because we seriously underestimate the sheer volume and magnitude and ugliness of our sin. We candy coat it, we make jokes out of it, a lot of humor uh, amongst people or on, on media, etc. A lot of humor uh, comes out of sinful situations. We think it's funny what people say and what people do to each other, uh, whatever it is. I'm trying to teach myself, don't laugh at that stuff, don't even watch it. Why is it funny? If you laugh at it, you're celebrating it, you're affirming it. And, and we've got to, like, back away. This is how deeply we are acclimatized to it, is that we do that without blinking an eye. But uh, we've, we've failed to understand or appreciate the, the horror of what sin is. Let me give you an example. It's, 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 it's going to be horrible. Uh, it comes from the world of Biology. I heard this fact once, <clears throat> I don't know where I heard it, and uh, it, it's, it stayed with me the rest of my life. I thought, that's a good illustration of what I'm just about to talk about. So I want you to think and visualize <clears throat> all of the animal life on planet Earth, all the way around our whole wonderful planet, all the continents, Asia, Africa, Australia, North America, etc., and visualize all the living animals, not plant life, but animal life, <clears throat> I want you to visualize the big animals like elephants, hippopotamuses, and massive herds of livestock, cows, cattle, steers, herds of caribou in the north of Canada, north of Russia, herds of gazelles and all those 
animals, zebras, et cetera, in Africa. Like, just think of the millions and millions and millions of tons of living animals <clears throat> that are on the face of the earth. Add to that eight plus billion humans, because we're part of the animal life on this earth. We have souls, uh, but uh, we're part of it too. Add all of the mass, all of the weight of all of the biomass, all of the animal life on the earth, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and think of that. And I want you to also think of all the, those are the big animals. Think now of all of the little animals, some of the ones so small you can hardly see them. Mosquitoes, mice, um, parasites, bacteria, plankton, krill. You know what krill is? It's in the cold waters of the Antarctic, and uh, it feeds all the big animals. If we didn't have krill on the planet, we probably wouldn't be here. You can take that home, no extra charge. Think of all the little animals, and then think what percentage of, of Adam altogether, the big animals, the medium-sized animals, and the, and the little tiny creatures, the ants, the beetles, the bugs, etc. What percentage do you think all the big animals make up of all the total mass of animals? It's about 10%. I thought, 10%? That can't be right. I would have thought about 90%, right? No, it's, it's about 10%, you know, plus or minus. It's hard to say. So what makes up the other 90%? All the little creatures crawling all over the planet. Pick up a handful of soil out of your garden, millions of bacteria in there, part of that little bit of animal life. Uh, and uh, and uh, just, just realize that. So about 10% are the big animals, 90% are the, are the little creatures, the crawling creatures, etc. Now let's go to humans, to our hearts, to sin. Big sins, like the elephants and the hippos and the the great blue whales, etc. Uh, <clears throat> and think of the big sins that people, the visible things, the things that shock us, and, and we look at it and we go, oh, I would never do that. You know, uh, you know the big sins like adultery and stealing and, and telling a blatant lie to thousands of people and violence and racism and, and uh, all, all those terrible things that happen. Those are the, those are the big animals. Uh, and then let's think of all the little sins. Little, but no less deadly. Maybe more deadly. Pride. Self-exaltation. Envy. Unhappiness at your success. That's envy. Jealousy. Uh, racist thoughts again. Uh, 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 greed. Just wanting more. And I'm not happy unless I have more. And I'm just driven by little bits of idolatry or maybe bigger bits of idolatry that we put things in front of God. Impatience, hurtful words, all of those bacteria and plankton and ants and beetles and bugs and mosquitoes. Probably make up the vast majority of our sinfulness. The big sins that are so visible and shocking all can be traced back to the invisible sins that start in the heart of every human being. Murder, all the way back to dislike, envy, or hate. Adultery, trace it back to 
you know, some kind of, some kind of lustfulness or uh, idolatry of some sort, twisting of our sexuality. Um, you know, think of, think of, think of all, the, all the big sins. They're traced back to the little sins. As I said, no less deadly. They are the origin of those sins. And, uh, and I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to point out that, that we, are, our souls are teeming with all of these little creatures crawling all over us, and our sin is greater than we think. There's a, there's a man, I referred to him a couple of weeks ago, who just passed away from New York City, and uh, his name was Tim Keller, uh, a great teacher, pastor, author, and uh, we'll miss him. He used to say this, very famously, he used to say, we are more sinful than we realize, and we are more loved by God than we could ever know. Can I say it again? We are more sinful than we realize, or than even we admit. But we're more, but the but is important, but we're more loved by God than we could ever know. And he used to balance those two truths as he preached the gospel. Take your sin seriously. Take God's love seriously. Let the shock of this drive you to that and be grateful for Jesus, your Savior. When I was a boy, I was raised on a farm <clears throat> west of Cambridge. And uh, we used to have a dog. His name was Mike, a big Scotch collie. He was my best friend in the world, and I was his best friend in the world. I loved him, and he loved me. Mike was a good groundhog hunter. We had a lot of groundhogs on our farm, and he used to roam the fields and catch them and kill them <coughs> and bring them home as a present for me. He would bring them and lay them on the front lawn and then just look at there with his tongue hanging out and his tail wagging, and, and I'd say, good boy, Mike. And, uh, and, and he would, I, I think, I, I'm sure he would think this, I love my master so much, I'm going to bring him home two groundhogs tomorrow. <laughs> so my job as a boy, eight, nine, ten years old, <clears throat> was to collect these dead animals. A groundhog is the size of a good-sized cat, right? And, uh, and, and with a shovel or something, pitchfork, I don't know, and, uh, and carry it far away from the house. This was my mom's orders. John, get rid of that. So I'd take it way out in the field and leave it there to rot where, where it, you know, it wasn't in our line of sight. Once in a while, though, I would miss one. Mike would bring home plenty of groundhogs. And sometimes he would lay one maybe under a tree or on the other side of the garden or something like that, and, and uh, I wouldn't see it. But four days later, we'd all smell it. There's nothing... Farms have a lot of smells, but there's nothing like the smell of dead, decaying meat, right? I'm sure you've experienced it, some of you. Then my job was to try to get that decaying piece of flesh way back in the field as well. Once I walked up to one of the, I followed my nose to where the decaying animal was, and I looked at it, and I thought, oh my goodness, it's alive, it moved. Then I looked a little closer, and it was teeming with maggots who were all moving, and I, it was gross, right? And, and, and flies were buzzing around it, the flies that had laid the eggs that produced the maggots, etc. I know I'm grossing you out here, but I have a point. And that is that <clears throat> more than you realize, our souls are teeming with maggots. It's ugly, it gross, it's gross, and it stinks. And this is how God views sin in the world. This is why he went to such 
radical action to eradicate sin and pay for it at the cross is because of how he sees it. And shame on us for not seeing it as clearly as he does or appreciating the work of our Savior. I woke up in the middle of the night last night and a thought came to me from an old hymn. <clears throat> the, th the line goes like this. Foul I to the fountain, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. I thought, where does that come from? And I'm laying there thinking for half an hour. What hymn was that? What hymn was that? Looked it up this morning. Uh, Rock of Ages, a great grand old hymn. Foul, comma, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Well said. The word gospel means good news. And the gospel's core message is that we have such a Savior who will wash us, cleanse us, and deliver us from our sin and its disastrous, condemning effects. As Paul said, and we read earlier, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's good news indeed. The fourth reason we don't take sin seriously is, is uh, in this world is that sometimes people say, you Christians, you're pathetic. You oversimplify everything. You say that the world's biggest problem is sin. Sin, sin, sin. That's all you're talking about. And, uh, and, and, and they say, the world is more complicated than that. Come on, you guys, wake up. And, and um, <clears throat> so I'd like to actually come back to that and address that next week. Yes, it is a complicated world. Yes, our problems are complex. But can they be traced back to some kind of root? And is it sin? We'll talk about that next week. Three scripture passages just as samplings of what scripture says, what God says about the human condition. Slide four, Jeremiah 17, nine. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you ever listened to the news and heard about some horrific thing that one person did to another and you turn to the person in the kitchen with you and you say, I just don't understand that. That's what it says right here. Who can understand it? It's, it's weird. Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. There's madness in my heart. There's madness in our hearts. It might only look like a little parasite crawling around on my soul but beware of what it could become and where, and where it could take me away from God. We need a Savior. Mark 7, these are the words of Jesus himself talking about the human heart. Listen to this. He talks about little sins that grow into big sins. He went on, uh, Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. You might say, Jesus, take it easy. You know, you're, you're getting carried away here. No, he's not. He's telling the truth about the human heart. And he's telling the truth about why we need a Savior, because this is true of us all. All these evils come from inside 
and defile a person. What we make of the Savior is directly dependent on what we understand he has saved us from. Remember that passage in Luke chapter 15, I'll read it in a moment, where the the shepherd has a hundred sheep and then he notices that one of them is missing and he goes out on a search for that lost sheep, finds him and brings him home. That's our Savior. You and I were the lost sheep. He was aware of you and I, loved and valued you and I, went and searched for you and I, found us and brought us home and rejoiced. Let's read it together. Uh, Notice this old painting on the slide behind me. I I thought of this. I always kind of like this. There's the lost sheep in peril, hanging on the edge of a cliff somewhere, and the shepherd risking his life, reaching down. Notice the eagle hovering, danger, etc. And uh, I just, I love that picture of the shepherd searching for the lost sheep, of our Savior searching for you and me. Luke 15, 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered, gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them like, oh, gross. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, just one. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? There's the searching, purposeful, persevering shepherd going after how long? Until he finds it. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. There's the joyful shepherd. I found it. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven, says Jesus, over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Why so much joy? Because a lost sinner has been found and saved. I'll tell you what I'm after. I'm after something today. In me and in you. I'm after a fresh awakening in my heart and in our hearts about what a great Savior we have. But the greatness of the Savior is dependent upon the horribleness of our sin. So we had to talk about that. And we have to appreciate that. And I don't want you to forget it. I want us to remember it. And then as we, cont- as we have to, as Christians, contemplate the horror of our sin, don't stay there. Go immediately to the cross. Do your contemplating at the foot of the cross where your sin was paid for by your great Savior. I'm after worshipers who worship not because you have to, not because everybody else is worshiping, who worship, who would worship if everybody else was silent, who would express their thankfulness to their Savior for saving them from such a great peril that we humans are in. I'm after people who serve today, who serve out of gratefulness for their great Savior who served us first. I'm after people who would love God, like truly, truly, not just the words, but truly would love God and and seek to 
every day put it into some kind of words and prayer and praise who would love God because he first loved us when we were not lovable. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning as we've talked about these things that we would be humbled in a jaw-dropping, freshly awakened awareness of Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, our Savior, Jesus, my Savior. Awaken our sleeping hearts, stir us from lukewarmness and apathy and just tradition and going through the motives, stir us to purposeful service, purposeful worship, rooted in a fresh, grateful, joyful appreciation of Jesus the Savior. Amen.